Well, here we go. Another edition of Radio Friendly Unit Shifters. Jeff Sweatman, your host. And well, we're uh, joined by a special guest this week who I might have to have him tell you his full title. I'll just call him Senior Director at Concord, and we'll find out what he's directing seniorly. <laughs> I have been, Donda, how are you doing, man? It's good to see you. Uh, it is great to see you, Jeff. I'm doing well. I am doing well. And yeah, I, I think my title keeps changing. So as of now, and instead of just adjusting the language, I think we just keep adding to it. So okay. I think that's the trick of it. So, so let me reference my business card here. Uh, <laughs> I think the official title uh, this week is Senior Director of National Grassroots Video and Tour Promotion. Okay. So basically it gets to mean uh, whatever other folks don't have time to do, I get to fully dive into. So <laughs> well, I, get to, I get to be a Swiss army knife here at Concord. That is awesome. Yeah. And you've worked with so many great artists over the years, uh, even before you got that title, of course. But um, I just wanted to make sure I had it right since it, to make sure there weren't any other additional words since the last time we, we talked, because it's been a little while, but <laughs> that's good. So tell, well, I guess let's start with what does that mean in, in kind of practical terms for your like day to day where you're dealing with a whole different bunch of artists right on Concord is the overall umbrella, but it's sometimes different labels and you're kind of dealing with all different aspects on your end of things. Exactly. Yeah. Concord um, is a phenomenal label. We're lucky to be the number one independent music company in the world. And that includes recorded music. It includes Concord Publishing. We have a theatrical division as well. So the whole Rogers and Hammerstein collection is part of what we do um, in publishing. We keep acquiring wonderful new divisions. So downtown publishing most recently has become part, it's joined the Concord family. And then in recorded music, um, it's a whole array of, of just tens and tens of different labels and we're very fortunate, everything from Stacks. I came in when uh, we were able to have the Vanguard and Sugar Hill family join Concord. Our frontline labels were able to have wonderful divisions like Loma Vista, Fantasy, Rounder, Concord Records is fantastic. Fearless, they do so much great work in the rock field. And uh, our newest addition is the Easy Eye Sound team. And so having them in the family now is, is just fantastic as well. Um, and then on the catalog side with the craft recordings we have, that's where Vanguard and Sugar Hill reside. Um, we're able to have um, Stacks and the incredible history of what Stacks does, Prestige, Savoy, and then the catalogs of those respective frontline divisions too. We're able to work and, and plumb those um, records and make sure that they're getting the attention that is deserved because our artists are putting together a great catalog of material and we want to honor that. It's not just about the last year or two, it's about what they've been doing for their entire careers. Wow. So you're based in Nashville then, or are you able to kind of move around a lot or are you pretty much set in one place? Yep. So I had been in Los Angeles for 15 years and um, then came out here to help with the roots division of what Concord was building in Nashville. And as we kind of recenter where we're going to be, obviously we have offices in Los Angeles. Now Nashville is becoming a huge epicenter. Uh, we have offices in New York, Miami, um, and then we're international too. So we have offices in the UK and Berlin um, as well. So it's uh, we're worldwide, baby. That's how we like to roll. 
That's awesome. Well, I've heard the Concord name, you know, just being a music fan, even outside of radio for years, but I feel like this whole new incarnation is still fairly recent. And when, you know, you guys would blast out the the latest single or whatever, and it was this whole, you know, docket of like the team, you know, it's almost like an old school approach to getting airplay where you've got like different people in different regions of the country. It's not just a one person for the East and one person for the West or just one person for the entire country, like some labels do. So maybe talk about that division, I guess, of labor or how it kind of came together. Cause it really is kind of a dream team of <laughs> promotion people. I was just like, wow, these are all the best people working for this new thing. <laughs> and I fully agree. I mean, these are not just some amazing friends, but they're incredible experts in their field. So I get to work with, like you said it, some of the best people doing promotion. And to me, they are the best. And, and a big part of that is because of the teamwork. Any one of them could lead a team. Uh, any one of them could run um, a whole label department if they needed to, but we get to rely on each other. So we have 10 people strong in the promotion department here at Concord. And that is a, such an amazing benefit because we have folks who have territories and regions, but we also have folks who are on the national level to give it scope. So Jill Weindorf is our general manager and she oversees all of our label services, including promotion. Tyson Haller runs the promotion department directly um, with Angelo Scrobe, who runs the field division of um, what we do at promotion. And then we have an incredible array of folks on the promotion side. So we've got Aaliyah and uh, Tyson, both based in the New York office. We've got Howard Frank and Catherine Fawn, based in Nashville here with me. Uh, we have Alyssa Holcro in Chicago, um, Howie Pavar in Seattle, Darnell is in Los Angeles holding it down. So to be able to have a team that is able to really serve our radio partners on a regional level and have folks who are looking at things on a national perspective, we really do get the best of all worlds. And it's a luxury we know that we're fortunate of. And it's also incumbent on us to deliver too. That's why we're able to be, they just released the latest chart share numbers. That's why we're number one on the rock chart. It's why we are fortunate to be so dominant at AAA. It's why we right now have the number one, two and three records at Americana. Um, it's why we're able to do what we do at alternative and that's a, a field where now we're a top five label in the alternative field as well too and these are all things that are areas that we strive to excel in um, and it's also because success begets success so what we're doing is noticed out there and it's noticed industrially which is great but mm -hmm. most importantly it's noticed by artists artists wants to be where it's hot where it's happening where the action is and when we can break one record in a given format then folks are saying like, well, how do we get to be a part of that success? And so, yeah, if you look at the promotion staff, it's great. When you look at our records, it's great. And I really believe it's one leads to the other and that feeds into the other side and it becomes a perpetual circle. So uh, we're fortunate that Concord believes in investing in promotion and we feel that weight and we wanna deliver, not on a annual basis and like, hope we have one great record, but on a continual basis on that weekly, we get a weekly report card, right? And what we yeah. do, it's, it's a department that is, is black and white. Is Are you having more airplay this week than last week? And it's not about impressions, but it's about real air, airplane spins. So we have to deliver and we feel that that's incumbent. And in addition to all the great marketing we're able to do, we have to deliver on a week to week basis in terms of uh, showing up for artists because they're showing up for us. Well, I'm sure there's uh, streaming or, you know, various 
social media or, you know, online things that you're monitoring, but being a radio guy myself, it's like, I think there's a lot of appreciation on the programming side that you all took this approach focused on radio and your expertise is radio. And that's where you, cause you all could have easily just focused on playlists and Spotify and Apple music and everything. Maybe talk about how that works in, in your world. You know, how close of an eye are you keeping on that? The importance of radio and that sort of thing. Yeah, to us, it's um, all important and there's value in each of it. We have to be mindful like the value proposition and who we're talking about with which facts to bring it to a radio side, non-com versus the commercial side, there's different conversations. And at some points, non-com wants to be first. They want to break a record. They want to champion someone early. And that's great. And that is so important and needed and valuable. And I think the reason a lot of us got into radio is because we wanted to champion artists that we feel are underserved and have a chance to then reach the entire world. But because of the realities of the, the way that um, music is consumed and the way that radio has to make its money, we also understand that commercial stations, they're in this for the broadcast side of it with emphasis on broad. And they're trying to reach as many people as possible. And familiarity is important in that universe. So rather than begrudging it, it's like, okay, great. We can speak that language too. Um, on the non-com side, it's about passion. It's about quality. It's about, isn't this something that you can get behind? On the commercial side, we can use that just in a different way. It's like, this is great. And it's got numbers behind it. This is great because it's got a sync story behind it. It's great because they've got a social reach that not only are they selling out when they come to your town, but this is the number one geo-targeted um, demo that they have in the entire U.S. And that means something. And then, then the commercial stations then feel justified to be able to put something on air because they're not flying blind. So yeah, we need to take use of every bit of data that's there. And our streaming partners are invaluable in that. Our social media partners are invaluable in what we're doing at Concord at the labels. And we really work hand in hand with all of them. When we come up with marketing plans and strategy, when we decide to take a single to radio, when it's time to just focus on the artist development side. So all of that is very strategic. And, and I'm fortunate to be in that kind of artist development front. That's kind of what the grassroots element um, represents of, of my title, uh, because there's some things that I get to work on behind the scenes before we even go to radio. It's maybe on the tour side. It's to, let's develop them in certain markets. Let's see um, what is proving itself and raising their hand and then go to the stations in that corridor, if that makes sense. I also get to do um, on the video side with broadcast partners. So I get to work with BET and CMT and MTV and bringing and up some of our artists case studies. We'll talk about why that's important and some of the historic precedents that they've been able to create. Uh, because we're able to super serve our partners and really deliver in a way that maybe other indies aren't certainly, and even some of the majors are focused on other things um, where we're trying to really deliver value for our partners. Um, and this is a theme that we keep coming back to too, is we don't ever want to force our records and artists on our partners because if they do us a favor and it doesn't work, we've now hurt the relationship with the partner. We've hurt the artist because we've went sooner than it was ready for them. And we've hurt ourselves in terms of a timeline and what we're doing. So we want to be very mindful of what we're doing is the right time. And it's a win for everybody all around because that is what they remember afterwards. They're like, great, we broke one record. 
but we want to break every artist in some certain way. So we want to make an impact everywhere. And if we go to our partners at the right time, they remember that. They know that we're not looking at them as just the catalyst, but part of an overall plan. And so that's why we can come back to them. And that's what credibility is. That's why when you and I talk about records, it's because you know, it's like, okay, this is ready for prime time. They put the story in, there's an investment there. There's a reason why they're feeling this is the record to be talking about right now. We try to be very mindful about that. Yeah. So is it that same team of like 10 folks that you were talking about that's also, you know, not only worried about radio, but also trying to get on the right Spotify playlists and maybe working in the sync world a little bit and things like that. And like you said, TV too. Yeah. Luckily we're able to focus on promotion. We have a whole sync team. We have a whole streaming department. uh, We have a whole social media team. We have digital marketing. um, And then each label has their own respective teams too. So Concord is able to kind of augment all the facets and all the divisions that individual labels teams have. So when we talk about like, why wouldn't you want to be part of Team Concord? We're able to really work on a global scale and we still want the labels to have their individual identity. When you're listening to a rounder record, that's going to sound different than Loma Vista, which is going to sound different than Easy Eye, which is going to sound different than Fantasy, which is going to sound different than Fearless. But the thing that runs through all of them is they're the highest quality, highest class, and you're going to be able to have services that fit each one that's tailored for that individual, not just artist, but that individual record, because each record that an artist makes is different as well. And we want to honor that too. So yeah, there's layers of layers of folks. And when there's uh, an album that's brought to the table, there's literally hundreds of people that are surrounding it and able to put their professional work into it such an intricate web and uh, so many talented people behind the scenes. And that's partly why I'm doing this uh, podcast, shine a little bit of light on, uh, on folks like yourself and um, the great work you do. So let's go back to Knoxville, Tennessee. Seems like a pretty important place in your uh, <laughs> growth and development. Um, talk about that and um, born and raised there, right? And went to college there. Born and raised in good old K-Town, Tennessee, first 21 years of my life. So yeah, proud to be a, a UT Vol and uh, went to school at Farragut and went through the whole system there. So yeah, I learned I learned a lot about Knoxville. And I really appreciate the time that I spent in East Tennessee. And um, that's why when Concord offered the opportunity to move from Los Angeles to, to Nashville, it was, it was a nice way to kind of return home to the volunteer state. So how did your um, extended family kind of end up there? Do you you have a lot of relatives in the area? Or it's been an interesting journey for my family. My dad went back and kind of with a a couple of his sisters, they went over to Germany and kind of figured out some of my, the the holes in my lineage that were, you know, how the heck did this group of Schwetmans end up in the middle of Illinois and in farm country where they basically a lot of them still are today. So I'm always fascinated by those. Um, You haven't been on that, uh, that PBS show yet, have you? Where they go back oh, to- Oh, no, no, <laughs> where you trace the roots? Yeah, 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 I know what you I just mean. saw Lewis Black was on there the other day. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, he, he's gonna be a lot more uh, loud than I would be, so <laughs> I'm sure they had the volume dialed up. But no, it is, it's a pretty fascinating story what drew my uh, mom and dad here um, from all the places. I mean, they, they, they spent their entire lives in India as every generation before them had as well. It's like, it seems like they could have just thrown a, a dart and ended up in Knoxville. But really, it's, it's because the first year that um, the University of Tennessee and the university where my dad graduated from in India, they had a sister relationship. And because that was the first 
first year of that relationship, the president of UT, um, President Andy Holt, flew out to India to deliver the commencement address where my dad graduated from. And my dad was so impressed by him. He said, wherever that man works, I need to be a part of. And that was Knoxville, Tennessee. So he then had to convince my mom about making the move because my mom had zero connection to why would you want to leave this land where all my family is. Right. Um, and so he he had to try to try to make that happen. And, and he was able to, to do that. And, and it's that typical immigrant story. They literally came here with two suitcases, not knowing anybody, um, but they had a dream and they wanted to find a way to make it work for their kids. So um, we are fortunate that they worked so hard and um, were able to deliver this for us. Well, at, at what point uh, did you tell your folks you kind of wanted to go into the music industry and what was their take on that? My, my parents are still not thrilled with my yeah. choice yeah. of radio. <laughs> I, th I think my my mom, especially, she's, she's still hoping I get a real job one day, but, uh, but no, she's been really supportive and so has my dad. And as long as I can support myself, then um, I'm not asked to ask them for a check. <laughs> I think I think then they're fine with it. But, but it's also one of those things where like, like, you know, it's, it's not doctor, lawyer, or engineer. Those are the three things that are known. You know exactly what that is. And uh, there's a, a, a guaranteed compensation for that. Music, radio, record label, what is that? I mean, and yeah. I think we all still struggle to try to explain it back to our, our family um, about what that is. But um, I'm lucky to have support. I think, I think when I was able to get them an autographed shirt from James Taylor, um, an artist that they knew and loved. And I was like, oh, okay, this is legit. So either he <laughs> bought that off of eBay or there's something real here. So I think that was, I think that was a real turning point. Yeah. Yeah. I think mine was probably, my, I got my mom and dad into a meet and greet with Sheryl Crow at one point. They got to take a picture. And so I think at that point they realized, oh, okay. And this was only like 10 years ago or something. So nice. uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely, we, we need that legitimacy. Yeah. No, I got to work with Dolly Parton in the very beginning of my career. And then that was one of my mom's, A Coat of Many Colors is one of my mom's all-time favorite songs because of the Knoxville um, time that we spent. So yeah. I think that helped make it seem like, well, I know Dolly, so I mean I didn't tell her all I was doing was like cutting up flyers for a Best Buy in-store you know like I was doing real grunt work at that time but um, you know I was working for Dolly Parton so it was it helped a lot. That's one of my uh, seven-year-old son's favorite artists Dolly Parton so yeah is that about as close as you get, ever got to her did you get in any meetings where she was or? <laughs> you know there was a meet we were she came to Universal Amphitheater um, in Los Angeles and the label we we had time to, to sit and talk with her um, and she was doing a meet and greet and it was going to be on the tour bus and so I was asked if I could come up on the tour bus and at the same time we got the call that Reese Witherspoon was ready to come up and say hello to Dolly as well. Again, Los Angeles. And Reese literally came up to the door of the tour bus, but she had seen that there was still a long line of fans. And I was kind of feeling nervous too, because like there were still a lot of fans who wanted to say hi to Dolly. Yeah. And Reese said, 
if Dolly still has other fans to say hi to, I don't need to get in the way of that. Like she should connect with the folks that, you know, that she wants to. And when Reese Witherspoon said, you know what, I'll take a rain check on this. I figured I should also take a rain check on this. Like, I don't need to be the label dude that gets in the way of the fans. And so I was like, I'll have a chance to say hi later. Um, I haven't, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm still waiting on that rain check. But, um, but it was a real moment to me that someone who didn't decide to use their privilege and instead to give it back to the people, um, that I, was really informative. And, and, and it's like, same thing. Like when we have meet and greets at shows and we can either go backstage or stand in the merch line, like I'd rather stand in the merch line because there's people and fans who are willing to pay money to see these artists. And I don't need to get in the way of that. Like, like I'm going to have time later. Um, and even if I don't, it's like, these are the folks who are giving us a job and furnishing a career for these fans and artists. So it's like, yeah, that kind of takes priority. Like I can send them a text later. <laughs> you weren't coming from University of Tennessee or coming from Knoxville out to the big bad music industry in LA. You actually had spent some time at, at UCLA, right? Going to school. Yeah. So when I went from the University of Tennessee, when I graduated, I went out to um, San Diego to serve in AmeriCorps. So that was a phenomenal experience. I got to be the director of a youth education program for eight to 18 year olds. And I was so impressed by the work that was going on locally that it inspired me to want to study to get my master's in public policy. And UCLA has probably one of the best program, well, definitely one of the best, if not the best um, program in public policy um, in the nation. So I said like, well, what do I do to kind of take the lessons we're learning on this communal level and magnifying it to a national level? So I ended up in Los Angeles to study my master's of public policy at UCLA. So that's where I kind of stumbled into my label gig as well. So that kind of led me to working at Vanguard rather than just being a street team member from San Diego for the label. Gotcha. Not just Dolly Parton. I mean, Merle Haggard, Tanya Tucker. You worked with some pretty legendary folks. Let's just start with the the country legends, I guess, first, <laughs> and then we can talk about Indigo Girls and Matt Nathanson and some other people. But what was that like when you've got an artist that has such, you know, everybody's got such reverence for their the back catalog, and then you you're kind of coming in with some new material, right? And you're trying to get people to say, hey, wait, this person is still around. <laughs> Exactly. And that's such an important part of it. And, and it struck me. So the first time we met Merle, he hadn't officially signed yet. We were still kind of in that courting relationship. So he was playing a casino, um, gosh, maybe 60 miles from Los Angeles. And we were invited to go out to meet him because he wanted to, you know, he's very involved. He was very involved in his business and uh, he had to kind of size you up to make sure that he was going to get in business with you. Like this was, you know, 60 <laughs> albums under his belt. Like he had been around the block way more than I'd been alive. So <laughs> I, like he was going to make sure he does his due diligence, which I appreciate. Yeah. So he um, has a great show. He plays a couple of the new songs and it gets a great reaction. Um, we had heard the record and I was enthralled with it. Again, like growing up in East Tennessee, we have WIVIC, W-I-V-K, and it's a station um, that, that's country, has a 20 share in the market. So, I mean, that's like friggin' mind blowing. Um, and that was what we were, one of the many stations we were listening to. So I loved Merle Haggard and, and, you know, I don't get starstruck too often, but this is definitely the kind of cat that you get starstruck by. So um, we all go up on the bus and the different folks um, introduce themselves and 
the A&R rep, um, Bill, who had been talking to him, um, introduces us and he shakes hands with Lucy. Hi, I'm head of uh, publicity, introduces um, some of the other staff and she gets to me. Hi, my name is Ayapa. I um, oversee radio at Vanguard. And so then he takes a second and pauses and says, oh, radio doesn't care about old Merle anymore. And I was like, sir, if you sign with us, we will get you airplay on this album. And it was one of those moments where I meant it. I wanted to mean it. Um, the album was great and it deserved it, but he was right as well. Like his latest albums hadn't been getting any airplay. And he looked at me with a twinkle in his eye. And then he says like, we'll see about that. Like, like I mean, to him, I was just another label exec in a suit, just telling him what he wanted to hear. And, and I, I meant it as genuinely and earnestly as I could have, but he had heard everything from everybody. Right. So sure enough, about two weeks pass, and then we get the call, Merle Haggard signing with us. And I, at first, my immediate reaction is ecstasy. It's like, oh my God, this is fantastic. I get to work with Merle Haggard. And then my second one is, I remember that conversation like, oh my God, I have to get new Merle Haggard music played at radio. <laughs> so then I kind of freak out. Um, and so, we put together a plan and I'm very mindful about what we want to do because, because I really do believe it. Like it is vitally important that we, not just for this album. And again, it's about telling the narrative. When we look at music, it's not just about the songs that make up that album. It's about a narrative and about a story and about putting this artist's history into context. So all of that is going into what I'm trying to think of with my radio plan. And sure enough, we get him radio play. We get some non-com play. We get a couple of AAA spins. And then Americana takes to him in a way that they hadn't because it just hadn't been prioritized previously. And so we work up our ways up the charts and, and we have a lot of success, a lot more success than they've ever had in, in um, previous years in the last batch of albums that he had had. And then I get the call when he's playing Stagecoach that Merle wants to see me. And that freaks me out because anytime he had talked to someone, it was like to kind of ream them out about like, why isn't this happening? Why isn't this working? What's going on? What like, again, he's very involved in his business. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, there's no way I'm going to say no. I'm not going to say no to Merle. It's like, okay, I got to go take my lumps from, from Merle himself, which I'm bummed about because I thought we had done a good job, but it's like, okay. Um, so I go up to Stagecoach, my car breaks down on the way up. So it's like, oh, great. This is just another sign. It overheats because Stagecoach is like 110 degrees in the middle of the desert. And so I finally get to the tour bus. The tour manager weighs me on back and sits me down. Merle, see you in just a moment. Like, oh, God, like I, I am in such deep <laughs> trouble. Merle slowly sees me. I stand up, shake his hand. He sits down and he looks at me. And he says, you said you were gonna get me airplay and you followed through. I just wanted to shake your hand. I am levitating. It was like, I did not think that was how the conversation was gonna go. I had in my head like 10 different bullet points of stuff that had happened. And I didn't know he was aware of it. But from that conversation at the beginning, when he said radio doesn't care about Oral Merle, old Merle anymore, yep. we think that there's artists who get to a certain station where it doesn't matter, where they're beyond any certain aspect, but it matters because especially for some of our legendary artists, that's what they grew up on. That's what got them famous. That's what made them a household name. 
Yeah. Even to this day, I dare to challenge you to find any artist that is a household name that doesn't have radio as a component of their story. And he was appreciative and we went out and it was actually a, a Sirius XM broadcast of his set that night. And it was fantastic. And we were able to do more albums with him. And it was, fan it was a great experience all the way through. And he always had an open door policy and he was super great. But it also showed you as an independent label, like we followed through on what we said and we were mindful and we were thinking about what makes this album special in the pantheon of great Merle Haggard albums. So yeah, we got to do more work with him and, and, and that's something that I take with me too, is like, that was a special moment and I need to have that kind of reverence for every one of our artists, whether they're an emerging artist or a legendary artist, like it matters. Like the work that we're doing for them, it's about their careers and livelihoods. Yeah. Well, and Tanya Tucker was a little bit different circumstance, I guess, when she started making music again, right? And then at what point did Brandy Carlisle kind of come into the equation? Well, it was so, so Tanya and Shooter had a really close connection um, because, of course, she knew the family, the Waylon right. and, and the family. So, so she knew Shooter just as a kid. And so growing up, as Shooter kept developing chops and getting finer tuned and becoming an artist and then a producer, he was always clamoring and said, Tanya, I'm gonna make a record with you. And Tanya would always kind of smile because she always knew Shooter as just as that kid running around the card table. Right. So, but one day he, he was able to really get her to point the tour bus in the direction of Los Angeles and make it happen. And so he was telling Brandy Carlisle that he was going to be going into the studio. And Brandy, to Brandy, Tanya was a seminal artist because a fierce, independent woman in country music, outlaw doing what she did on her terms. It was one of Brandy's mom's favorite artists. And it really, Tanya was a seismic influence on what Brandy was able to do and kind of give her confidence that you can do this as, as, a, as a woman in the music business. So when she had heard that this was happening, she was able to join forces. And she has been, I call her Saint Brandy because everything she touches is just like, there's a new air and new enlightenment on it. Yeah. And between what Shooter and Brandy are able to do, it's incredible. And now Shooter is on staff as a and team uh, at Concord. Um, and so it really does come full circle. So cool. Brandy is just a tireless champion. Shooter is able to so subtly get the best out of the artists he's working with. So that's how they were able to team up. And in the studio too, Tanya talks about this, like there had never been another producer who would literally be in the vocal booth with her to help her and coach her and give her confidence. Um, and that really made a difference. And that's why the While I'm Living album came out like it did. And it was just an incredible experience too, because that's one of those things where, again, Tanya hadn't had a lot of success at Radio Land with her last couple albums, but we put together a real impressive strategy. We worked with the promotion team. We worked with all the different teams. The press story on her was phenomenal. And not only were we able to get her radio play and, and record play and use some really big moments um, with promotion and broadcast. CMT was an amazing partner on, around that. But she was able to earn the first Grammy Awards of her career as well. And, and again, I mean, some of these things we think like, well, they got their own career, like these things don't matter. There's certain touchstones and certain benchmarks that really do matter. And, and that matters because it's a peer uh, voted award. It made a big difference that Tanya felt like sh there was some different level of acceptance. And I mean, there's such huge parts of that campaign that 
were amazing to be a part of and, and to be able to bring in new partners who hadn't kind of gone as deep as they had before because they were seeing the story, because we were able to share the narrative, because we were able to talk about Tanya and her work in not just what her album was about, but again, reframing it about what she meant for not just female artists, but for every artist who had an outlaw attitude and wanted to do it their way. She empowered women, she empowered men, she empowered anyone with an aesthetic to say, I gotta do this on my terms. And Tanya was able to be that absolute role model to say like, yes, you can do it and it can work. She's kind of the heir to Loretta Lynn and Dolly Parton in a lot of ways, right? A hundred percent. And she yeah. honors that as well. And, and that's the thing too, is like people would say you were the first and she would say, no, 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 Loretta mm -hmm. came before me. And, and she would do that same thing. She wanted to kind of show that, that lineage as well. And, and part of it is because she's humble, but part of it is also because she wants to honor her roots and, and let people know that there's a story here that we're all a part of and let's continue it. Let's keep it going. And what that, what she was able to share that story at the Opry and what we were able to do with broadcasts and, and sharing radio specials from the Opry House and um, just being able to really dive deep and having Americana audience uh, embrace her, having non-com stations that have never played Tanya Tucker say, you know what, we need to play this record. Like all of that meant something. Um, being able to have every song on the album played was able to make a statement that there's a breadth here that's really important. Well, and you can tell how much uh, country radio I listened to growing up because I still call her Tanya Tucker, but it's really Tanya, right? If you're a real it fan, if you know That's what you're right. talking about. And now you are. So so you're in the family now, Jeff. So, so there's always that dawning of enlightenment. Well, like you said, you grew up listening to country radio, basically, in Knoxville, right? Did you Well, I grew up a... listening to, it was, it was country radio, it was AC radio, okay. it was rock radio, and I mean, like, like most of the people probably listen to this, I was that kid that was recording my favorite songs and, and then making a mixtape out of that I, later. Oh, yeah. later. Yeah. So, so yeah, it was a little bit of everything, and I still have some of those mixtapes. When I've talked a little bit in previous episodes about how I have distinct memories of Eddie Rabbit, Crystal Gale, Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, they were all on pop radio, basically. They, there was no difference back then in like, I mean, you know, there was, but, and I still remember that time where it was tough for Michael Jackson to even get on MTV. Like they, you know, there's the classic clip of the outtake of the David Bowie interview with Mark Goodman, where he's kind of taking him to task for like, why aren't you playing more diversity are all the videos by white people and mark wanted so, to i mean that's the thing yeah, too. It's yeah. like it shows like he wanted to champion everything <laughs> he's such a rabid music fan and 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 yeah i mean that's the thing too is i mean to me it's the i i am bummed by the over um I would say over the, the hyper formatting of, mm -hmm. of radio, because to me, you look at what's going on in the UK, you look at what was, what's going on streaming. It's like, when you ask folks, what's, what kind of, what, what do you like about music? They don't go into genres, <laughs> like they grow into right. the artists. They go into music that, that just speaks at a holistic level. And I really wish we could kind of go back to that era where you could hear a soul song next to a country song next to a rock song and you didn't have to turn the dial to do that like it was all out of one and to me like what aor was able to do and so much of the freeform stuff really is like you got to hear the best of the best and it really to me was where culture was fantastic it's why stuff like woodstock was able to be impactful because it wasn't any of one type of thing it was everything and so that's the attitude that we try to take as well as great. Okay. We can use 
this music can reach everywhere. It's not like, how do we go into our rabbit hole deeper? It's about how do we bring all the audiences and surface all of them to experience this album? And, and to me, moving forward, I think that to me, that's why non-com radio is so exciting because it doesn't have to worry about its genre. So why AAA is so exciting because that's where you can kind of get away with playing that wide swath of music and folks not just call you out for it, but that's why they're turning you on. And that's what yeah. they're looking for. That's why they're hungry for it. And yeah. to me, that's where you get the most engaged audience and the most passionate audience. So yeah, yeah. that's, that's to me that, that I want to look back to our roots to inform our future. Well said, as always, Iapa from uh, Concord. He is the, I've got it right here. Let me see. Uh, I didn't commit it to memory. I'm sorry. I haven't either. It, it, it might have changed in the last half hour we've been talking too, so I'll have to check on that. You better check your uh, check your phone. The uh, Senior Director, National Roots Video and Tour Promotion at Concord. We, we'll get a couple more quick stories and uh, we'll take a, a quick break and be right back here on Radio Friendly Unit Shifters. And we're back here on Radio Friendly Unit Shifters. We are joined by Ayapa from Concord, he he's, does so many cool things and he's working with so many different artists at any given time and has throughout his career. So I'm just overjoyed to have you spend a little bit of time with us here. And I know you were super busy, so we got to let you kind of get back to your, uh, <laughs> to your life here. But uh, I wanted to talk for sure about Matt Nathanson and Indigo Girls. And there's a new artist that I'm really digging, who I think is on a pretty cool tour right now. I can't remember offhand who she's touring with. Jason Isbell, maybe? No, that's not right. Anyway, Amethyst. Kia, talk about um, those three and kind of how you got involved in it. Because Matt Nathanson, you were, he's an interesting case because he had basically come to your attention or to Vanguard's attention by being a super DIY, like building an audience over a period of a number of years, right? Yeah, so Matt had an amazing history of, of making records and and he wasn't at any step of an emerging voice. Like he definitely had a strong following. Um, he even did a record with Universal and it just hadn't broken through in the major way that I think anyone had wanted, but that passionate fan base existed. And so he was on tour with uh, Carbon Leaf and I first saw him at the Roxy and just the engagement he had, the, the persona, the way he was able to command an audience, um, it just, connected with all of us and so we were really struck by him and the songwriting it only gotten better and better and better and every record had gotten better and that's what you want to see in an artist he was never making the same record twice it was only evolving into something special so we were fortunate enough to sign him and and be able to work and work and work alongside him the work ethic that i saw in him is unmatched. I mean, he was willing to work from midnight to midnight. And because he knew, A, he was so invested in the music. He was so passionate about not just his music, but about music in, in all types. Like he grew yeah. up a metal fan and he'll talk about how it was Tracy Chapman and Indigo Girls that kind of blew his mind to see that what the power of an acoustic guitar could do. And so he had this huge swath of knowledge and the love for what the power of music can do. And so that also was really exciting to us um, 
because that's what all of us were about too. Yeah. And he that and I must be the same age because uh, that was sort of my progression from metal to getting into Indigo Girls and Tracy Chapman. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. And so, so quality sees quality. So you recognize that. So I appreciate that. And so, I, I mean, I mean, there's so many stories we could tell, but just kind of what stands out to me is the amount of time that it took to to break Matt, like, you know, folks might think he was an overnight success and that's the furthest thing from the truth. Like he had invested decades of time and, and even on that Some Mad Hope album, we had a game plan. Like we had a setup, like we knew Come On Get Higher was gonna be a hit record, but we wanted to use a setup track. We wanted to make sure that Car Crash was out there to set up a base so that when Come On Get Higher gets service, it could then take it to the next level. And again, that's a nice, era of a time when you could have a couple of setup records and you can work with radio partners to talk about here's what the plan is and uh, work with the marketing field and so uh, kind of lay out what is going to be coming over the course of the next not just year but two years right. and so being able to take it from AAA to Hot AC to Pop and now it's a song that just is ubiquitous and to being able to work with streaming partners and like Pandora jokes that he's at the center of their genome of what he's about uh, because it fits so many different ways and there's so many stories I could get into but but being able to to work the Howard Stern show for two years on Matt before he was able to get on the show and he then just absolutely lit up the studio. Yeah. That was one of the standout moments to be able to see him on the KLOS Mark and Brian Christmas show and on the same show with Rob Halford playing on that bill. And then Matt Nathanson gets a standing ovation from the crowd. Like that is a lifetime memory of just something that was really special. And just the way that he's able to engage and now have a, you know, even a bigger career than ever because he believes in the power of music and every record is better. And so it, it was just, a joy of my career and lucky enough to call him a friend now to this day and um, just to see what real work and palette passion and talent is able to yield is um, he's a paragon of that well and i know you know he is a career artist and all that sort of thing but uh your story there rem reminds me of a question that i always mean to ask and i'm not sure i've ever asked it on the podcast but like a song when you you're hearing it like in the grocery store and everywhere you go and it's just one of those songs like you said is ubiquitous come on get higher is an artist then i mean as long as they have the publishing and the songwriting credit and all of that sort of stuff that they need to have in place and it's not like somebody else's song i mean are they basically is it kind of one of those set for life things or is it like financially, does it just keep giving? Like if they, he never made another song the rest of his life, would he be able to kind of live off of that? Or has the industry changed to where that's not quite what it was maybe in 20, 30 years ago? Yeah, well, you'll definitely have the revenue coming in. And especially if you're the songwriter, that publishing revenue comes in because on the radio side, it's um, songwriters that are paid. And so all of that is great. And it can be licensed and that's new revenue that comes in. But I think also... Matt specifically, it's always about an artistic growth and a development there. Right. So he's never just satisfied. He's never right. satisfied treading water. There's always going to be like, let's reach further. And it's one of those things where, you know, as the poet said, like our reach should exceed our grasp. And so I don't think he ever wants to quit because there's more to be said. There's more to artistically say. And sure, the financial, there might be some type of a certainty at a certain level, but there's an artistic level that should always be kind of evolved towards. So yeah, I don't, I don't know that he can ever just tread because that's not the way he's constituted. Sure. Um, so yeah, I think he's always going to be pushing. 
he's always going to be moving forward. When, when you have that big of a hit, I'd imagine there's a, a lot of people calling you guys to figure out like, oh, let's do a collaboration or let's work together or tour together or things like that. So it's probably just super exciting to even beyond the financial piece to be like a whole new artistic world opens up to you, right? <laughs> and that's what's exciting too, is that he then was able to go and tour with Indigo Girls. He was able to, Sugarland started covering Come On Get Higher. Um, and he got lit up about that. Now wow. he gets to call Jennifer Nettles and Christian Bush friends and they get yeah. to work together and they've collaborated on songs before. You listen to Run and that's a great collaboration together. Yeah. Um, he's on tour now with um, folks who were supporters early on, Train. Pat Monahan was a huge supporter of Matt's early on. And since then, they've um, now been able to go on huge tours together at amphitheaters around America. So, so it's really cool to be able to see relationships kind of come full circle and then new mm -hmm. collaborations that have resulted from that success. And, and all of that is important and all of that matters. Yeah. Well, and Indigo Girls, of course, had a long history on major labels, and then you've been able to kind of work with them more in, in recent years and they're still going strong. I mean, talk about evolving and, you know, trying to reach for that next goal. And they've kind of been the epitome of that over the years. Very inspiring. Uh, and and you, that's the exact right word for it, Jeff, inspiring. And that's, that was kind of how I first encountered them was just as a fan. It was, it was in the 90s when, I mean, this, this is a long story, but it's, it's a fun one. Um, they, this is a time when um, a lot of arts education was being eviscerated from the schools. And so there was standardized testing that was everyone's goal. And, and that was what the presidential administration at the time decided this is what good education is about. So obviously Amy and Emily are passionate about the arts. So they decided to do this contest to encourage high schoolers to um, write poetry or song lyrics. So they had this uh, contest and they were so inundated by the number, so it was a contest was you submitted a poem or lyrics and they would select one to do the music for and it would basically, you're the songwriter for an Indigo Girl song. Wow. Like, how friggin' cool is that, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've just got to like- I can only imagine it. how many submissions they got. <laughs> well, and they, and again, that shows you their humbleness. Like they expected maybe a couple hundred, like they were, blown like it was thousands and thousands of submissions and they were like whoa like we can't just leave this at this level so they decided to do we should do a free tour of high schools that have really been engaged and do shows for them as a way of a thank you for all the work that they've been putting into this yeah so they set up a series of shows from the Carolinas into Knoxville, uh, into Tennessee, and Knoxville ended up being one of them. Um, and you had nothing to do with that, right? I actually, I didn't. It was my brother. <laughs> Ironically, it was my brother who did. He was an editor at the Farragut High School paper, and so it was the editorial team at the. I was a freshman at the University of Tennessee at the time. Um, and so it was a newspaper crew, uh, my brother and, and others, who helped make Farragut one of the points of the, the, the concert. That is so awesome. So as this started happening, uh, remember now, this is the Southeast in the 90s. And so the parents started realizing, wait, Grammy winners? That, that wasn't what they hung their hats on. Like, you should be fortunate that your children are able to be witness to Grammy winners coming to all of these high schools. The part that they got hung up on were, oh, they're homosexuals, they're lesbians. Yeah. And so sure enough, one by one, these can concerts started getting canceled, mm. including the one at Farragut. Wow. And so instead of laying down and saying, oh, well, that's a bummer, 
it was like, again, shout out to the high school kids at that time and, and the passion. It's like, no, we're going to call out this bias and discrimination and make it a big deal. So they, my brother and the, the Crow's Nest uh, newspaper team organized a walkout um, and a boycott. They ended up mobilizing CNN to cover the story. Uh, it became this huge news piece. We were able to find, this is where I started help. We were able to find a concert venue on the University of Tennessee strip that they were able to play at. So while the boycott was going on at Farragut, I was able to interview Amy and Emily just as a fan to kind of get a perspective for the paper, for that high school paper. And I was so struck by their conversation. They said, it's like, we don't harbor any ill will. All we want is a dialogue. We just want a dialogue with these decision makers, with the principals to talk about what their concerns are. And even the situation when it was they were being really kind of rejected for who they were. They were taking the high road to saying like, we just want to talk. So later at the show, and it was also, I think the first time I'd ever gone to a sound check. Uh, and so I was feeling like I was getting a private concert with Amy and Emily, and that kind of lit me up and kind of like, like there's something special about what music can do. Uh, and so later that night, a bunch of the students from Farragut rolled in and, and they it was it was for the high school students so it's for the Farragut kids um, and a lot of them had gotten suspension notices they started passing up their notices to the front of the um, stage Amy and Emily would look at it they would read it and say like this is rock and roll so they would sign it and hand it back and then if you listen that that experience was part of what formed their song go and it was amazing it's like are you uh too old to care? Are you too young to count? It was really a moment to kind of galvanize what they were about and it re-inspired them. So again, like again, you talk about what feeds what in this inspirational loop. And it was the work of Indigo Girls that got this group of kids inspired, them finding out that that's not okay, got the kids reinvigorated and that inspires Amy and Emily. And the same thing happened with Parkland too. It's like there, then there were a whole nother batch of songs that came. And so Fast forward to another 15 years later, 10 years later, where now they sign to our label and I get to represent their music. And again, try to talk about stuff where, you know, the last couple songs hadn't gotten the radio success that their big hits had. And we wanted to change that. So I got to work with Art, who was overseeing the the department at the time, and we were going to dig in. And sure enough, we gave them their first top 10 hit at AAA radio that they had in, gosh, probably a decade or so. And wow. since then, we've been able to have more success and um, their stalwarts in the Americana format. They just released a 22 track live symphony album where we were able to get every song on that played at radio, which there's really no reason to do it other than it's friggin' amazing. Um, but that's the thing too, is passion makes a difference from the artists and from the team that you have. And at Concord, we have a passionate team that is excited about, oh, that hasn't happened before. Okay, hold my beer, you know, like that then becomes a challenge. So, so that's what we're excited to do is like, if you tell us something can't happen, that's when we say game on is like our motto is like the job begins at no. It's like, all right, that's what we get paid for. So let's show up and put the gloves on and, and bring these artists to a whole new level. And, and when we can bring career success or do new things for legacy artists, that's what's exciting for us. And that's what's exciting for them. And that's what brings a whole new wave and uh, new voices to the table too. Amazing stories. So uh, we really appreciate it. And, and just maybe as the last one in terms of artists that you're working with currently, Amethyst, just an amazing story with her. Um, 
give us your your pitch that you uh, you would to like pretend pretend the listening audience is the the radio programmer and this is a brand new person. I've never heard of this. I don't know how to say her name. What is going on here? <laughs> well, Amethyst Kia is going to change your life. First of all, that's that's the first pitch. So then, but but she's one of those kids who grew up um, as a gay black kid in suburban Tennessee outside of Chattanooga and weary and strange is the name of her album because that kind of defined what she was feeling and so she grew up with the music of alternative sounds of, of Radiohead and and finding kind of music was her connection to the world because she really didn't have much of a sense of community because she was just so different and felt so othered in the world that she was living in. But music was a place where she found solace and she found hope. She ended up studying old time music in East Tennessee at Johnson City at East Tennessee State University. And so she's this amazing amalgam of indie alt music of the 90s and roots music that stretches back not just to Appalachia, but to West Africa. And you, when you look at what the roots of the banjo music is, it's why she was becoming a, such a figure in Our Native Daughters, along with Allison Russell, who's a label mate with her in the Concord family. Uh, Amethyst is on Rounder, Allison's on Fantasy, uh, and Rhiannon Giddens and Layla McCalla, and able to try to showcase music in a whole new sense and make sure that folks reclaim the history of Africa in the diaspora of music, not just of soul music, not just of R&B, but in roots music and Americana and in country and like black music is all music. So that's really important to understand too. Um, with Amethyst, what we were able to do was do a music video premiere that brought together MTV and CMT and BET and Yo! MTV in an unprecedented way. Those channels had never prior come together and join forces on one music video. And for Amethyst Kia's Black Myself, they were able to do that. So if you like music, you're going to like Amethyst Kia because she's able to explore all of those. Tony Berg uh, was able to produce this. Um, you have Wendy Melvoin from Prince's band yeah. playing on this. You have Blake Mills playing guitar. You yes. have Kane from Portugal the Man playing on it. So you have an incredible band. You have an incredible voice. You have songs that deserve to be experienced and they recorded at Sound City. So, so it's one of those things where if you're passionate about any of these types of music, then Amethyst is gonna have a sound that connects with you. So it's one of the reasons I was bummed about Bonnaroo being canceled because she was gonna be part of the headlining set of the Opry at Bonnaroo. So that oh. totally brings together her indie roots, uh, the Americana side, and she made her Opry debut. So if you have a second to check out her My Opry debut story online, that also really frames well what she's all about. So, so there's some, some homework you all get to do, um, but there's some great work too. So the next time we'll talk about artists like Allison Russell and so many others who are really doing a great job of reminding people that music is visible in all shades, in all forms. And, and that's the work that Allison was doing at Newport Folk Festival. That's kind of what I use too, our once and future sounds, because she's able to kind of honor the past and the present and say, this is where we are together. We're in a sense of community. And to me, to end on, that's what I'm excited about, is this new sense of community where these artists feel like they're in it together. That's what we're trying to do at Concord, is build a sense of community and cross-pollinate and say, we're all part of this family. Let's go out there and make music together. Let's share music together. And we're talking to our radio partners. Let's do this as a united force. It's not one or the other. It's we're all in it together. Very well said. As always, uh, Ayapa, we really appreciate the time. And um, yeah, that her record is just one of my favorites of the last couple of years. And 
the singing and songwriting and playing obviously, but just the sonics of it too, like you said, with, with Tony Berg and everybody involved there with the house band. So I, I need to dig more into that Allison Russell. Cause uh, yeah, I enjoyed the Our Native Daughters project. I mean, I talk about all-star super group type projects. That's right up there. Yeah. So maybe you can tell folks just to, as a last little anecdote. So your first concert was MC Hammer. Is that right? Did, I'm, I've been doing a little bit of research, but where, oh, where when deep. was that? I mean, how awesome oh was that? This was great. This was at um, Thompson Bowling Arena. So you got the full show. You got the pyros. You got like singing along the, you can't touch this. You had the parachute pants. I mean, you talk about the full kit and caboodle of what a real stage show is about. And it blew my mind. And so again, it was like, I try to bring those moments and like, if I ever get too jaded to not appreciate a great moment, I need to re hit retire that moment because there's another kid who's passionate and ready to take my job and they would deserve it. If I, if I ever get jaded about a moment of what I'm doing is like, I need to like remember that experience at that MC Hammer show. And it was, it was MC Hammer. It was before he dropped the MC. So, you know, I'm old school, my friend. <laughs> How old were you then? What was this? Uh, I, not I, not to date I'd have you, to do but... the math. I I was maybe ten ish. Okay. Twelve. But it was the height of MC Hammer. Oh no. oh, it was yeah, in the yeah. midst of, of of you can't touch this fandom, and I was all about it. Oh, it was great. It was great. I was I was listening to actually it might have been even younger because I remember then going. I would not go to like seventh or eighth grade until I listened to. A subsequent song on the Too Legit to Quit album about um, the, about the children because I had to I had to take a Hammer's message into the schoolroom and say, "Tell me, can you feel the children pray?" Like I I don't I I was from the Gospel of Hammer in, in the good old hills in Knoxville, in the hollers of East Tennessee. Thank you so much, Ayapa from uh, Concord. We really appreciate it and uh, enjoy your. How old is your daughter now? She's three and a half and my three son and is one and uh, they outsmart me on a daily basis. <laughs> Enjoy a long holiday weekend there with your, with your lovely family in, uh, in you Nashville. You too. So. Enjoy the trains. I'm glad that you get a field trip with your, your yes. little ones. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to try and catch the Amtrak here. And uh, <laughs> my, my son, his uh, goal heading into the second year, uh, second grade year is to be a volcanologist or a uh, chef on a train. We've been watching this awesome show called Mighty Trains, which takes you on all these mostly luxury vehicles around the world, and but you really get to see some amazing places. And the the host of it is they do a great job with all the editing, and there's always something that breaks down at some points, and then they have to like talk to the the people, the workers beyond just the luxury train people, and you got you know the people that actually you know work on the. <laughs> <laughs> the rails themselves and whatnot so it's the, the unit shifters it's amazing yes exactly the unit shifters power to the unit shifters amen <laughs> take it easy man thanks for the time and uh thanks for listening to another edition of radio friendly unit shifters